Welcome to the U.S.-China Nexus, a podcast from Georgetown University's Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues. This podcast features conversations with scholars and policy experts on dynamics in China and Sino-American relations. The show's guests take us through the development of their careers and share their thoughts about the current state of bilateral ties. I'm your host, Eleanor M. Albert, a research fellow at the initiative. Our guest today is Evan Medeiros. Evan is the Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies in the School of Foreign Service and the Kling Family Distinguished Fellow in US-China Studies at Georgetown University. Your research and teaching focus on the international politics of East Asia, US-China relations, and China's foreign and national security policies. You also served on the staff of the National Security Council for six years as director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and then a special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia. Before your time at the White House, you worked as a political scientist at the Rand Corporation and served for a year in the Paulson Treasury Department, working on the US-China Strategic Economic Dialogue. Evan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Helena. Great to be here. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us your quote unquote China story. How and when did your own interest in studying China come about? So my interest in China came about in the early 1990s. I was a very active debater in high school and to some degree in college. Our debate topics were often international topics. And through them, I became very interested in global politics, but especially arms control and nonproliferation affairs. And this was really the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s, right? You had the INF Treaty just signed between Reagan and Gorbachev, et cetera. And of course, in the early 1990s, you had all the revelations about Iraq's nuclear weapon and chemical weapon program, North Korea. So sort of nonproliferation was replacing arms control as an issue. And I was interested in those topics. And when I graduated from college, I was very fortunate to get this fellowship at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I worked with a senior associate there who was tracking global proliferation developments, and he wanted me to focus on Asia. And one of the most striking things I found was the dearth of information, but perhaps more strikingly, dearth of expertise on anything related to Chinese foreign and security policy. It felt like literally there were four people in the world, people like Michael Swain, Bates Gill, a few others that actually looked at these issues. There were very few Chinese publications. You know, this is in sort of the 92, 93, 94 time period. So it felt like a puzzle, a really interesting, intricate puzzle to try and understand it. And so that was an intellectual challenge. And then when I met some of these specialists, they were very encouraging of my dual interests in international security issues on the one hand and China on the other hand. It became apparent to me that I could match my functional interests with my regional interests and perhaps that would be interesting and useful. China in 95 was not the China of today, right? This was not the second largest economy in the world, rapidly growing military. You hadn't even had the Taiwan Straits crisis at that point, though that was, you know, we're on the cusp of that, obviously, in, in 95 and then in 96. So it really grew out of my interest in international security affairs. And when I went to graduate school, I decided, hey, I, I, I really want to pursue this and got a master's in Chinese studies and then a PhD 
focused on East Asia with a specialty on, on Chinese foreign and security policy. So it felt like an interesting intellectual challenge. Personally, it was interesting. And then when I started to really travel to China, not just for language study, but for research, what I found is there was a small community of specialists at Chinese think tanks, the foreign ministry think tank, the CICIR, within the foreign ministry itself, that were also interested in these issues. So there was sort of this small community of Americans and Chinese, and my interest just grew from there. That's right before so much starts happening in East Asia in terms of proliferation. You have obviously provocations by the North Koreans, which lead to China's involvement in all of the six-party talks, which alas are long gone, but certainly a fascinating time and to see how much China has changed since then. I mean, Eleanor, to give you a sense, back in the mid-1990s to try and understand Chinese policies on arms control and proliferation, we literally, we were interpreting opinion pieces in China daily and suggesting that perhaps that signaled Beijing's policy is shifting. Right nowadays, an opinion piece in China daily doesn't really mean anything. But back then, you didn't even have an arms control department within the foreign ministry, right? There were a handful of people within the Chinese military that worked on these issues, largely because they had served at the Chinese mission to the UN in Geneva, working on conference on disarmament issues. So it, it sort of felt like we were working on something that itself was in its infancy. I mean, I can remember in 1997, when the foreign ministry decided to establish its first Department of Arms Control and Proliferation Affairs, headed by this very outspoken, somewhat flamboyant, chain-smoking Chinese diplomat known as Sha Zukang. Right. And anybody that knows Sha Zukong will, will laugh at that image because he's since retired. But he was a, a very much a nationalist and sort of a quirky pick to be the head of the arms control department. But he also got stuff done. Flashing forward to the current climate, if you had to choose one, two, three words to describe the current state of U.S.-China relations, what would they be? I would say the relationship today is a fragile equilibrium. I think that as of today, my general view is that when one assesses the U.S.-China relationship, there's usually a characterization for the short term. What does zero to six months look like? Because things are very fluid and very dynamic. But then one has to look beyond the short term, right? Sometimes I refer to it as the cyclical features of the relationship and the structural features. And I think we're in a period of cyclical equilibrium, but a fragile one. But I think structurally, we're in a period of long-term deterioration in which the competitive dimensions of the relationship are expanding, they're intensifying, and they're diversifying. Both sides are displaying a much greater willingness to use confrontational approaches as well. But for right now, I think it's a fragile equilibrium. The fragile equilibrium is basically built on two things. Number one is the Chinese want to put a floor under the deterioration in the relationship, largely because of this being a year of leadership transition, right? They don't need a major crisis in the U.S.-China relationship. Number two, they face pretty severe economic problems at home. There's some professional economists that are asking whether or not China may face a recession this quarter. In other words, negative growth, which is a striking question to be asking for a country that has experienced the growth rates that China's experienced. So they've got a lot going on at home. 
And then, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put a lot of geopolitical stresses on many of China's major power relations as well as their regional relations. So the fragile equilibrium is on the one part the Chinese effort to put a floor under the deterioration in the relationship. And I think that's reflected in how Washington and Beijing handled Biden's video chat with Xi Jinping in March. But the Chinese floor is matched with an American ceiling. I think the U.S. is trying to put a ceiling on China-Russia relations. I think that is really the immediate priority in U.S.-China relations, trying to cap the degree of Chinese material support for Russia. And I think that's largely succeeded. You haven't seen systematic and sustained Chinese violations of the international sanctions, and the Chinese didn't provide overt material support to the Russian military effort. And so you've got the Chinese floor, you've got the American ceiling. And as I said, I think that forms an equilibrium of sorts, but I have real doubts about whether or not sustainable. So it may be an equilibrium, but it's probably a fragile one. And the fragility is driven by, on the one hand, I think as the war grinds on in Ukraine, Russia is simply going to become needier and is going to need more from China. And the Chinese may face pressures to bust through that ceiling. On the flip side, even though China has tried to put a floor under the deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship, I think that Chinese concerns about U.S. policy toward Taiwan are growing. And that may lead them to believe that the floor itself that they've sought is unsustainable. But look, Chinese have a lot of big problems at home. And instability in the U.S.-China relationship isn't going to help that. So equilibrium now, but it's fragile. Let's see how long it's sustained. You were just talking earlier about the competitive dynamics, right? Competition seems to be a recurring dominant trait of this bilateral relationship. Is it purely issue-based? Is it geography-based? A combination of the two? And separately, are there any areas that might be able to bypass being put in the competitive basket? Are there things that we can still try and work together on? So I see the competition, Eleanor, more as issue-based than geographically based. But of course, U.S. and Chinese interests intersect in certain geographies, the Indo-Pacific being the obvious one, right? That's the crucible of U.S.-China competition because more of our interests intersect in more ways and more frequently than pretty much any other part of the world. But fundamentally, I see the competition as issue-based, and it's broadened. America and China have competed on issues of security and economics for a long time, decades. That's not new or surprising. But I think the competition in both security and economics is definitely broadening. But you can now add to those two baskets technology and even questions of ideology. And by ideology, what I really mean is governance choices choices about political and economic governance, but also choices about global governance. I think our our views are diverging. And the thing about these four baskets, security, economics, technology, and ideology, is that unlike before, they're all nested and linked together. In other words, security competition manifests in U.S. policy on economics and technology. U.S.-China technology competition has expressions in economic policy, putting Chinese companies on the entity list. And the same thing with security. Technology manifests in terms of security policy. And so when you have these four baskets of competition and they're linked and nested in ways unlike in the past, I think what that means is that the ability of Washington or Beijing 
to compartmentalize issues as a way to manage this intensifying and expanding competition just becomes harder. And that was one of the traditional tools that both sides relied on. Hey, we're simply going to decide we're going to take these differences, put them to the side, but we can still work on trade and investment, or we can still work on North Korea, Iran, or nonproliferation. And what concerns me is because competition in one basket has expressions in other baskets and they all become linked, it makes it much more difficult to manage this competition. You know, another way to look at it is to look at the drivers of the competition. And one of the phenomena that really concerns me, Eleanor, about this sort of phase of the relationship we're in is that I worry domestic politics in both countries, not just in the United States, but in both countries, maybe driving the competition in some arenas more than actual geopolitics. And as the US Congress in the US, as party institutions, and especially the Propaganda Bureau in China become more active, you have these, let's call them bottom-up domestic political forces that are just accentuating the differences in national interests. And I worry that domestic politics will start to play a greater role than just garden variety national interest calculations. And then third point to make would be as our areas of competition expand and intensify and domestic politics in both countries play a greater role, what we're seeing is new dynamics emerge. In other words, new ways in which these areas of competition are being expressed. So what you see is, for example, greater tolerance for risk and friction, both sides much more willing to pursue openly confrontational strategies, right? And I think in particular about the disinformation efforts that Chinese have been promoting in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the thing about disinformation is we can understand as much as we dislike Chinese propaganda, but disinformation actively promoting lies about the United States and the U.S. support for Ukraine, that America operates secret biological weapons facilities, right? Those disinformation, those lies are being promoted not just by some nebulous Chinese netizen, but actively being promoted by Chinese government agencies, state-directed media. I mean, literally from the podium of the foreign ministry. So openly confrontational strategies. And then to get to your second question about where are areas where we can grow, I have to admit I'm fairly bearish. I simply don't see many areas of sustained cooperation. And one of the most unfortunate and in many ways disturbing dimensions of the COVID-19 crisis globally has been if there's one area that you would have expected the U.S. and China to cooperate on, if you had conducted a hypothetical experiment five years ago, 10 years ago, give me a scenario, you would have come up with a pandemic. And what we learned is that the pandemic was a source of divergence, not convergence. So in the traditional baskets of climate change, global health security, global trade and investment, macroeconomic stability, and even nonproliferation, you don't see very much sustained cooperation. For listeners, it's early June, and just a few days ago, the Chinese and the Russians vetoed a UN Security Council resolution condemning North Korea's launch of an ICBM. A couple of years ago, that was sort of a no-brainer. North Korea just blatantly violated many UN Security Council resolutions, and they need to pay a cost. And the Chinese and Russians said, nope, we're not interested in working with you on that. So unfortunately, I don't see 
many growth areas. And then the hardy perennials that we've always relied on as a foundation of the relationship with deep roots are people-to-people ties, especially educational ties. And of course, you and I work at Georgetown, a Jesuit university with strong beliefs about people-to-people interaction and something that we you know, obviously work on and support. But because of some of the policies Xi Jinping has adopted, some of those people-to-people interactions between our business communities, between NGOs and civil society, between educational institutions. When Georgetown students who are PRC nationals have to be careful about what they write and say in class in Georgetown or any institution because somebody might report what they're saying or writing, that is a really unfortunate state of affairs. And so even educational ties, which we always expected to remain a sacrosanct, almost protected dimension of the relationship, it's facing stresses as China becomes more ideologically oriented and the mistrust of the United States seeps into civil society, media, business ties, university to university interactions. And so it feels like we're in an environment where distrust is growing, restraint is declining. I worry at the level of our military interaction that the risks of an accident or miscalculation are there because our militaries are both very capable in coming into more frequent contact with one another. I want to tease out a little bit more on the ideological component and containing it to the foreign security policy area. Do you think China has a vision for world order? And if so, you know, what are its attributes, traits, or characteristics? Is there any cohesive body of thought towards its international affairs? I do believe that China has a vision. I believe the vision has key attributes, and these are expressions of longstanding perceptions and preferences. The vision includes instincts toward looking at international politics in terms of hierarchy, a strong belief in centrality for China. But what exactly hierarchy and centrality mean is difficult to say. So I think there's a vision, but the vision is somewhat inchoate. It's still evolving. And at some level, it's very unsurprising for scholars of international politics because it's about maximizing freedom of action. It's about reducing constraints. It's making sure in China's case that it has a veto on any behavior, especially behavior by countries in China's immediate periphery that China believes is inimical to its interests. I think the Chinese want to make sure that they have unfettered access to the inputs to growth that they need. And I think that they believe that China deserves a greater voice in the rules, norms, and institutions that guide international affairs. And where those rules, norms, and institutions are inconsistent with Chinese values, the Chinese are looking at marginalizing them. And so the most liberal aspects of the liberal international order, you know, in particular, the UN-based human rights rules and norms, I think the Chinese are uncomfortable with those and they want to minimize those, hence Chinese activity in the Human Rights Council to try and privilege social and economic rights over political and civil liberties, for example. 
try to minimize the influence of those institutions in terms of criticizing China's own behavior at home, whether it's the crackdown in Xinjiang or the, just the awful treatment of Uyghurs. And so I think the Chinese want to shape and change some of those liberal norms. I think the Chinese want to use international institutions to further validate China's own efforts like Belt and Road. I mean, I find it very curious, curious in the sense that no other country does this, China trying to get Belt and Road initiative language into UN documents. I mean, that's like the US trying to get UN documents to refer back to build back better. And so at some level, because the party itself is so focused on legitimacy and self-validation, Chinese foreign policy in a way has become yet one more tool of helping the party to legitimate and self-validate itself. And I think that that's another dimension of China's vision. In other words, making a world that is safe for China's version of single party authoritarian political system and state-directed development. Usually when people talk about China's approach to international affairs, they, and this is Ian Johnston's good work, he says the order, there's no one order. The order is really a collection of different orders, which makes sense, and that China likes some and dislikes others. But even those orders, like the collection of rules and institutions on liberal trade and investment, even on those, the Chinese are starting to call into question some of those. And then, of course, there's others like in cyberspace or the Arctic, where the Chinese are trying to write the rules as the rules are being written. I wanted to tap into your expertise that comes not just from your research, but also from your direct policy experience. You know, you've had a lot of exposure with Chinese interlocutors through both fronts. What are some of the things that you think are most misunderstood about China's conduct and about its thinking about its role in international affairs? It's a hard question to answer because I think that there's a diversity of types of misunderstanding. So it depends what audience you're talking about. Are you talking about the audience of American allies and partners in East Asia? There's often misunderstanding of how the U.S.-China relationship operates. Are you talking about commentators in the United States, especially China watchers. So I think the misunderstanding varies depending on the community you're talking about. Also, my experience was a particular experience because the six years I was involved in this at the National Security Council was a six years of pretty substantial transition. So the simple way to talk about it is the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping and the transition from the dungest approach of taking a low profile, the iconic phrase of Tao Guangyang Hui, to something that's more activist in nature. A Xi Jinping that's actually more risk acceptant, risk tolerant, looking to push boundaries and advance Chinese interests, even if it generates pushback and blowback by the United States, other major powers, or peripheral states in East Asia. And so I was there in a very, very particular time what struck me was, number one, how long it took to get things done. Dialogue and interaction with China often takes time. The system processes things very, very slowly. It's exceptionally top-down. That's uniquely the case under Xi Jinping. I mean, there was quite a bit that we could get done in the first term of the Obama administration, dealing with the Chinese ambassador in Washington, Zhang Yisui. His counterpart in Beijing, the vice foreign minister in charge of the U.S.-China relationship, Sui Tiankai, 
and Dai Bingguo, who is the state counselor. Those three were a uniquely effective team at communicating among themselves and getting things done. And basically listening to what we had to say, negotiating with us, taking it to Hu Jintao and getting it done. And we were able to do serious pieces of business like get Chinese support behind a very serious UN security sanctions resolution on Iran as the Iranian nuclear problem was becoming a major global issue. And this was in late 2009, early 2010. And getting Chinese support for that, the Chinese ultimately abstained. They didn't support it, but we didn't want them to veto. But bringing them around to do that was a big piece of business. Sanctions back in 2010 aren't what they were today in terms of being a globally accepted feature of international politics. So things took time and effort. Under Xi Jinping, what we found is it only became more difficult because so much decision-making was centralized around Xi. And once Dai Bingguo left, Sui Tian Kai came to Washington, Zhang Yesui moved to the margins, we had to rely on Obama and Xi to do a lot of big pieces of business. It's hard to put everything on that one relationship. And it, you know, it's not as if that they were talking and or meeting that regularly. The other piece that surprised me that's difficult to convey to people is simply the degree of distrust of the United States that seemed to grow over time. And I know some China experts will disagree with me on this, but in my experience, our efforts to reassure the Chinese, we weren't interested in regime change. We weren't trying to overthrow China, where our policy was not to expand the Arab Spring from the Middle East to East Asia. We literally got that question nonstop for about a year uh, after the Arab Spring. And then the same thing over Hong Kong. And even despite Obama's discussions with Xi Jinping after the umbrella revolution in the fall of 2014, it was almost as if the system was simply hardwired to view the U.S. as constantly seeking to undermine, delegitimize, and destabilize the CCP. And that only grew under Xi Jinping, and it made it very difficult to cooperate. And what we saw is the aperture of cooperation gradually declined over time. And oftentimes, what the Chinese did was they claimed that they were interested in cooperating, but really what cooperation was, was not really cooperation, it was actually dialogue. We'll just talk with you about cooperating, and we will use that to manage you and manage your expectations why we continue to do what we want to do, which in some cases, like in the South China Sea, was incredibly destabilizing. Dialogue and cooperation, while the Chinese talk a good game, very difficult to see that materialize. On the discussion of diplomatic tools, are there tools or areas in the bilateral relationship that you think are underappreciated or untapped? There is no one tool for one period. In other words, as the relationship evolves, as the political environment in the relationship changes, as the drivers of the relationship change, different tools are going to be applicable in different instances. And because of where the Chinese economy is today, because of the zero COVID policy, I think once the Chinese stabilize their economy, it's possible that they could be open to some more trade and investment with the United States. The question is, for American companies, is it in our interest to do so, right? Will their interests be protected? 
Does it create national security risks for the United States? I hope we get to a point where we can rebuild the people-to-people ties. That's going to be important to prevent the drift from strategic competition to outright enmity, hostility, or confrontation. And once we get out from COVID, and the Chinese will have to abandon zero COVID at some point, they're going to have to figure out a way to do that. But it feels like we're at a minimum 12 months off from that, if not longer. I'd like to see our educational and civil society ties expand. We should always be talking. And, you know, one of the virtues of technology, as you know, is many of us spend evenings talking with Chinese colleagues, colleagues really from all over the world on Zoom to at least make sure that the channels of communication remain open. So I think the educational ties and people to people ties are going to be important. But look, given the competitive dimensions of the relationship, given the national security risks, we have to be attentive to those too. So in those areas of the relationship, science and technology, the national security concerns are there. And I think that's going to be a constraint on educational ties in that space. But we're going to have to look at educational ties in other areas because it's one barrier to that drift, that uncontrolled drift from competition to hostility and confrontation. To conclude, I wanted to get your thoughts on what are the two pressing obstacles or most significant stumbling blocks in the relationship? Well, the first one is an obvious one, and that is in Taiwan. There are anxieties on all three sides of the Taiwan question, Beijing, Taipei, and the United States. And we need to find a way to stabilize the deterioration on the Taiwan question. Because if not, I worry we could create the conditions, not immediately, but eventually for a fourth crisis over the Taiwan Strait if the divergence continues. And that doesn't mean pulling punches. And I think the U.S. needs to remain true to its policies and its commitments. But I think we also need to be attentive to managing the security risk. And deterrence plays a big role in that. So I think the Taiwan issue is one. And I think number two, this is more of a theoretical point, Eleanor, but I think the United States needs to figure out how to balance the competitive dimensions of the relationship with the interdependence. The conversation about China, the U.S.-China relationship, and China policy in Washington is largely focused on competition. What types of competition, where does it exist, what are the drivers, how do we manage them? But the competition is only half of the relationship, right? We ignore the fact that we have a $650 billion trade relationship with this country. We've got a massive investment relationship and we're the two largest economies globally. We're growth centers. And so to me, the challenge for policymakers is to recognize not just the competitive dimensions of the relationship, but how we reconcile them with interdependence. And interdependence is not just in economics, right? There's ecological interdependence. Joe Nye has made this point. There is technology interdependence, whether we like it or not. And then simply because of the presence of nuclear weapons and questions of strategic stability, there's a connection between us there that we can't deny, similar to during the Cold War. So the interdependence is not just economics, as important as that is. And we're going to need to find a way to talk about the U.S.-China relationship in a way that reconciles these two aspects. Because the more you compete with China, there may be costs and trade-offs because of the nature and interdependence. And are we willing to pay those costs and trade-offs, right? Are you willing to tell American companies that employ thousands of American workers that they're going out of business because we can no longer buy intermediate goods from China? 
And I don't think we really seriously had that debate in the United States. And again, and to be clear, that's not an argument for pulling punches on competition. It's simply to point out that the competition is dissimilar to the Cold War because of that interdependence. And that interdependence is multi-layered. And where that takes you is a relationship that's less about an end state and more about a steady state. And that steady state is, is some dimension of competitive coexistence. And we need to figure out what does competitive coexistence mean for the United States? And it, it will probably mean different things over time as the U.S.-China relationship evolves, not unlike how the U.S.-Soviet relationship evolved. The tolerance of our partners and allies because we're going to be asking them to make costly, risky, difficult trade-offs. Are they going to be prepared to do that? And so I think we just need to think about what competitive coexistence means to us, how it's going to change over time, and how best to pursue it. Let's China Nexus is created and produced by Eleanor M. Albert. Our music is from Universal Production Music. Special thanks to Toya Ulan, Leanne Decker, Sherman Tong, and Amy Vandervliet. For more initiative programming, videos, and links to our events, visit our website at uschinadialogue.georgetown.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.